Please turn in your Bibles this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you get situated with your Bible open, we are praying that God will remind our hearts of the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that Easter is the most exciting holiday we have, the celebration of our risen Savior who lives forever in the power of an endless life. And he lives for you and for me. And so we're going to take our time and we're going to work through, beginning tonight, as far as the ministry that God has laid on my heart, all the way through Sunday evening, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're calling it the Resurrection Chapter. So I hope that you are familiar with this chapter. If not, I believe you're going to find some wonderful treasures from God's wonderful Word. I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 34 tonight, but I'm just going to read through verse 10 to begin, and then we'll take it section by section, and this is a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of this great chapter. Altogether, we're going to look at three areas in 1 Corinthians 15. Concerning the resurrection, we're going to see the proofs of the resurrection. Secondly, with the Lord's help tomorrow evening, we'll look at the process of the resurrection. Just how does it all work as explained in the Word of God? And then thirdly, the power of the resurrection. What difference does it make? And it should change our lives to live in the actual power of the resurrected life right here and right now as we anticipate all that God has for us as believers. So we're starting with the proofs of the resurrection. Please follow as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. And I am using the New King James translation. I'm sure you'll have no trouble following right along with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve, and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And we trust that God adds his best blessing to the reading of his word. Please join me in a word of prayer. 
Our Father, as we bow before your presence once again, we thank and praise you for your wonderful word. We are dependent, Father, upon your spirit to guide us into all truth and take the things that we've read and make the application to our hearts and our lives that we might know you more and serve you with all of our hearts and live in the power of the resurrection of our blessed Lord, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I really have been looking forward to this time since we planned it. It's nice to get past the COVID season, isn't it? And to come up for the blizzard here in the spring. I looked at my weather report and I saw the snow falling here and I thought, what is going on? We were 86 degrees in Charlotte where I live uh, on Wednesday. And here I am. I understand it's going down to 16 degrees Fahrenheit tonight. Oh, we better enjoy some warm fellowship, haven't we? I've also been looking forward to seeing Brother Mark again. And I, I, I knew Mark's dad from earlier and his work in Zaire as well as in Uganda. And uh, our visit with him a number of years ago, traveling through all the way across Canada, meeting Colin Anderson was one of the highlights of our trip. And we thank God for uh, Colin and for Mark. And we're so glad you're here. Looking forward to your ministry. So glad to get to see some of you haven't seen in a while, but uh, meeting some of you for the first time as well. You know, the most important part of any conference is right after we close in prayer. The interaction that we have together, encouraging one another in the Lord, iron sharpening iron, the things that we're able to talk about over refreshments, over a meal, just meeting each other. And so I'm looking forward to that kind of fellowship. And what better basis could we have than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came into this world, stepped into our lives by his marvelous grace, and now lives in us to will and to work his good pleasure. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was writing against the backdrop of those who did not believe there would be a bodily resurrection of believers. Oh, they believed there would be a spiritual resurrection, but they didn't believe that the body had any purpose whatsoever. I want to say at the very offset, when God worked his great plan of salvation, he worked with a total package program to save us not only spirit and soul, but also body. And God has a wonderful work that he is doing in us, and he doesn't leave any part out. And so in order to establish the resurrection of our bodies into being like his glorious body, he begins with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. I believe it's going to become one of the most debated situations that we'll find in the days in which we live when so many in the world are going off into every different direction and imagination of men's hearts. They're still only evil continually. But God has the answer to it. What is this life about? What happens after this life? And as we see what happened in this particular chapter, we understand that Paul the Apostle Paul, knowing the Lord as his personal Savior, was able to present it in such a way that made a division between the people, whether they accepted the truth or rejected the truth. I don't know if you're like me, but when I drive, I like to read license plates and bumper stickers. You can find out a lot about people. 
And there was a bumper sticker, it's very spiritual sounding. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You've seen that before? My wife Nance said, you know, you could shorten that bumper sticker. God said it and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. But if it's going to settle it for you, you have to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have to believe. It's true, whether you believe it or not. And when the Apostle Paul stood on the Areopagus, on Mars Hill, as it's also called, and presented the resurrection message of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a division between the people. And some, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked at him. And others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And I trust that if you have any doubts whatsoever, about the total message of the gospel, that you'll be able to see that God has included every part as we're going to look even now at these proofs of the resurrection. Beginning in verse one and two, we're going to see how the gospel is declared. Verse one says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. And I'll just pause there for a moment. The gospel, declared, I declare. I was preaching the gospel message a number of years ago in our local assembly in North Carolina, and someone came up to me afterwards and they said, what are you doing preaching the gospel to the saints? I said, I'm just following the example of the apostle Paul, thank you very much. He said, what example? And I went right to that verse. Moreover, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand. I'm glad to announce and proclaim the glorious message of the gospel message tonight. It is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That'd be nice if we could do a blanket statement and say, I'm glad we're all God's children here. You know, that's a very dangerous assumption. We should never make that mistake. But one thing we can say, that when the message of the gospel goes forth, it goes forth so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel message is open to everyone and anyone. As one preacher down south used to say, he said, God has chosen a nobody like me, to tell everybody like you about somebody like him who cares for anybody. And this is how the gospel message goes forth. There are times when we preach the gospel, even in our local assembly, that sometimes we might think that it's not for a purpose, but it is. There's the equipping of the body of the saints to go out and to do the work of the ministry as the spirit of God enables, equipping like pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so on, so that we can take the message out. Someone said, sometimes the gospel is to be preached. Sometimes it's a matter of teaching the gospel as well as preaching the gospel. Whether the apostle Paul was just preaching the gospel here or whether he was teaching the gospel, we still have the gospel message declared. And there's a certain safety and certainty in the fact that we can say, I declare to you the gospel. We need that clarity, don't we? 
and the declaration is certainly there. You'll notice those three things he mentions in verse 1. In verse 1, he says, which also you received. That's at one point in time, you heard the message of the gospel, and we're going to establish that in a moment. But at that one point in time, you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is designed so that anyone, the youngest child or the oldest person, can understand enough to say, I'm going to trust him. What does faith mean? What does it mean to trust? It means to put your whole weight in dependence upon him. Lean on him completely. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We have to come to that one point in time in your life and my life. Do you remember when you did that? I remember when I did. I wouldn't take anything for it. I can't tell you exactly the day or the month it was. I know it was February. I know it was in 1973. That makes me 50 years old in the Lord, you know. But you understand, there has to be a point in time, whether you know the date or the hour, that's not the important part. But you know that you put your trust in him. And sometimes kids at camp come up and they say, Mr. Rex, I don't know when I was saved. And I said, well, we can fix that. Trust the Lord right now as your personal savior. It's better to come twice for the same gift than not come at all for the gift that God offers. And so he says, by which, or which also you received. Have you received, have you believed the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? I hope you have. You haven't. I don't know a better time than now, which is the time, the acceptable time. And today, which is the day of salvation. Not only that, but he says, you'll notice it, and in which you stand. Once we have, at a one point in time, put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've taken our stand on him, we want to stay there. We don't want to be fluctuating like up one day and down the next. This does not change our salvation because that was settled once and for all when we accepted Christ as our personal savior. But then in an ongoing fashion, he says, in which you stand. And in a, a perfect tense way, he wants us to maintain that stance and not be moved away from the truth of the gospel. Thirdly, he says, by which also, this is verse two, you are saved. Isn't it great that we have a three-tenths salvation? I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Does anybody understand that three-tenths salvation? If you do, say amen. amen. All right, that's good, isn't it? Because when I look back to the point I trusted Christ, I know I was saved, past tense. God's work is going on in my life to change me and to make me more like his son. And I am being saved moment by moment. Do you know, one day I'll see him face to face and then I'll be saved in it, the entirety of the package, spirit, soul, and body. And I will be saved at that time. It all starts at that moment in time, but see how it expands and gives us a place to stand on the promises of God 
and to look forward to God's great salvation, his so great salvation as it opens up to us. But you'll notice something else in verse two, he says, if you hold fast, in other words, if you keep a grasp on that word which I preach to you, and notice this word of warning, unless you believed in vain. You know, we live in a world of a lot of deception. People can fool others. You can even fool yourself. Don't make a mistake here. Be honest with the Lord. He understands and he knows our hearts. When I trusted the Lord Jesus as my personal savior, my prayer, it wasn't, it wasn't very, well, we'll say orthodox, or it wasn't very clear scripturally. I just told the Lord, I don't know if I'm lost or if I'm saved, but I wanna be saved and I wanna make sure. And whatever, Lord, you're doing in my life, I may not understand, but I do understand one thing, I'm a sinner in need of the savior. And I said, Lord, I put my, trust in you as my personal savior. At that moment in time, I trusted the Lord. I was saved for all, all eternity. I never have to fear. I can lose my health. I can lose my wealth. I can lose everything I have, but I can't lose the salvation because he's the one that holds me fast. So when he says, if you hold fast, he's not saying like we're holding on to him but we remember that he's holding on to us. The Lord Jesus said, no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. No one can pluck us out of the Savior's hand. And then he says, I and my Father are one. Safe am I, safe am I in the hollow of his hand. Nothing can harm us, spiritually speaking. Nothing should alarm us because we know him who is our peace. We are looking forward to seeing his salvation completely fulfilled in that day, but thank the Lord that it has already begun, unless you believed in vain. Don't make a mistake. Your eternal destiny determined, is determined by what you do in putting your trust in him. Not only is the gospel declared here, but we see in verses three and four that the gospel is delivered. It doesn't originate with the Apostle Paul. It comes right out of heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the gospel delivered. Notice verses three and four. In verse three, we have a comparison. And Paul says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Does that sound strangely familiar? As a believer, it is familiar. In fact, if you'll hold your place here and just go back to verse 23 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, you'll notice similar wording that gives us a nice comparison. The apostle Paul had said, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. <laughs> you see the comparison? I received it, and I delivered it. I delivered it just as I received it. When did Paul ever receive this? On the Emmaus Road? On his way to persecute believers? The Lord stopped him in his mad career. 
and a bright light, brighter than the brightness of the sun, blinded the Saul of Tarsus, knocked him off his high horse, and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul's response, who are you, Lord? I think he answered his own question, didn't he? That's the first thing you have to know is who he is. Then he asked, what would you have me to do? That's the second question every believer should ask. First, who he is. Next, how can we serve him? And at that moment, the Apostle Paul received the message of the gospel. He spent some time evidently being taught personally by the Lord, growing in the Lord, and at the appropriate time, the things that he received from the Lord, he delivered to the saints at Corinth. And we're still enjoying the blessing of it today. How that the Lord, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and broke it, saying, take, eat, this is my body. You understand, this is what we do every Lord's day, remembering him. What's the basis of this? Is it some church tradition? No. It came directly from the Savior who said, do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul received it and faithfully delivered it to us. Then on the same level, in 1 Corinthians 15, back in verse 3, we see the gospel message is in the same level. He received it from the Lord, and he gave it out again to declare it to all the saints. We see that Paul, as a faithful steward, he presents, delivers the gospel in its clarity. Now we see, beginning in verse 3, in the middle of the verse, we see the gospel delivered in its four-part essentials. The essentials of the gospel message, you'll notice, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And you can trace it back from the very beginning all the way through your Bibles, from Genesis all the way through Malachi. And through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, aren't you glad you got four Gospels? I mean, it gives us beautiful view of looking at the Lord from four different aspects. We actually don't live in Charlotte, North Carolina. We actually live a little south of it in a country town called Waxhaw. In Waxhaw, we have the location of the Wycliffe Bible Translator Station with about, about 500 volunteers that work there or missionaries that are home on furlough. And so they've settled there and they raise children and grandchildren. And the grandchildren and children all get jobs in the local establishments right there in that little country town of Waxhaw. We have one traffic signal there. Come see us. Just turn right at the light. So when we go to the grocery store, we often meet young people that are believers, missionary kids. They're the dangerous ones, you know. So I was at the grocery store, Nancy asked me to pick something up, and as I was cashing out, I looked at the name tag, and the young man's name was Matthew. I said, oh, Matthew. I said, that's a good Bible name. He said, yeah, my folks are missionaries, and I'm a Christian too. I said, that's great. Checked out, got past the counter, and I realized I'd forgotten something. You know, COVID season, all these husbands were shopping for their wives. It was a dangerous time, wasn't it? So I went back and picked up the item I forgot, came back through the line. Matthew's line was busy. So I went to the young man right beside him. I looked at his name tag as Mark. <laughs> it's a good name. And I said, oh, so you're Mark. 
And behind me is Matthew. He said, yeah, we're both believers. <laughs> I said, I figured you might be. And he said, right past Matthew is Luke. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I said, that's great. And I looked back behind Mark and there was a young lady there and she said, I am not John. <laughs> I tell you what, we got four gospels. And when it says that he died for our sins, you can trace it all the way from Genesis all the way through the entirety of the Old Testament. There's that scarlet line that runs through the scriptures. Someone said you can cut the word of God on any page and it bleeds the blood of Christ. Is it not true? We see him, don't we? And in the gospels, and here we see how Paul brought it all together and said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I thank God we have a big Bible that tells us all about what happened, how he suffered for us. Christ died, yes, that's history. For our sins, now that's salvation. According to the scriptures, that settles it once and for all. And the more we learn about what he did, the more we are touched in our hearts to realize, this is what the Savior did for me. This is what God's plan was all along. And that when he cried in Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. His will through his word was being born out step by step, moment by moment, and in split second timing, everything took place right up to his death, right there on Calvary, when he took the sins of the whole world and they were all laid on him. And the great exchange was made. Our sins that put him there yielded his righteousness available to all who will trust in him. We have a wonderful Savior, don't we? I hope we never get over the wonder of it all, that the foretelling of the Savior and his finished work was all through the scriptures until the fulfillment by the Savior himself. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The second point of the gospel of these four essentials of the gospel, you find it in verse 4, and that he was buried. How important is this? The tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ is the silent witness that speaks so loudly in our world today. While you can find monuments of great world leaders in many places, you come to the tomb of the Lord Jesus and it's empty. On one of our trips to Israel, we stood outside the garden tomb. It was a busy time. Tour buses everywhere, pilgrims everywhere. And there was a long line that wound all through the garden leading up to the tomb. One group ahead of us, I mean, you know, some of these groups, I always take small groups, 20, 30 people, and that's, that's big enough for us. We wanna be able to move about freely. But some of these groups are in the hundreds. And one group stretched all around through the flowers and the garden, looking at the tomb, and we were all standing there. The front part of that group had already gone into the tomb. You can go right in there. You know, it's, it's just like it's described in the scriptures with the place where the Lord lay and a little side room. And so you go in and you can walk right through and see a tomb that by all accounts follows exactly the description. So the first part of that group was already in there and the back part of the group was thinking, 
I'm getting hungry, it's getting late. And when the first part came back out of the tomb, somebody in the back called out to his friend. He said, what's inside? You know what the answer was? Nothing. If that doesn't thrill our hearts, I don't know what would. This is not a, a monument or a memorial. This is an empty tomb that is open, not so that he could come out, but that we could look in. Mary Magdalene, she experienced it. Peter and John, they experienced it. The angels, they experienced it. And they said, come see the place where the Lord lay. It was the tomb where he was buried. How important is it? It proved and attested to the fact that his death was real. And for three days, just like the scripture says, he was there in the tomb. The third essential of the gospel is clear. You'll notice it in verse four. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Everything according to the scriptures. I know it doesn't use that phrase after he was buried, but let me tell you, his burial, it is definitely in the scriptures. He was with the wicked in his grave and with the rich in his death. And there placed in the tomb of Arimathea, a wealthy man who not only had a tomb, but had it in a garden and had all of this around. It's according to the scriptures, but his resurrection his glorious resurrection. It also is according to the scriptures for he would not leave his soul or his body to undergo any kind of corruption or decay, but he was raised in bodily form. And he came victorious. The victim led, became the victor over death, hell, and the grave. And in his glorious resurrection, Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. And so we have a risen Savior. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. But you know, I often would mention the gospel and say it has three parts, death, burial, and resurrection. Have you ever done that? It's not the way the apostle Paul did it here. He adds something else. Verse five, you'll notice again for the, the way that is punctuated at the end of verse four, I might have put an ex exclamation point there, or at least a period. The Apostle Paul, you know, he never was good at closing out short sentences, was he? And so he puts a comma there. And then he says in verse five, and that he was seen. That's the fourth essential of the gospel. This is not something that happened in a corner or in secret that no one else would see and attest to, God has his witnesses and he's going to tell us who his witnesses are. Because you see, in the gospel message, God has given us eyewitnesses of his resurrection to prove that his death was real, his burial was genuine, his resurrection was actual, and that he was seen by a number of people, 
12, 13 different times we have as post-resurrection appearances laid out for us in the Gospels. We should know them well and rejoice each time we read about them. But here we see not only the gospel as it's declared in verses 1 and 2, the gospel as it's delivered in verses 3 and 4, but we have the gospel as it's demonstrated in verses 5 all the way through the rest of verse 34. I'm watching the clock. I'm watching the clock. We may not get all the way to verse 34, but we've got tomorrow. And if the Lord comes before then, we have all eternity to hear it as it should be. <laughs> but let's just think, the gospel demonstrated. How does the Lord demonstrate the gospel? Well, he demonstrates it in people like you, and you, and you, and even me. Look what we read, beginning in verse 5, that he was seen by Cephas. That might... That name might be just a little bit different for you because we know him as Simon Peter, <laughs> the rock. That's what Cephas means. Simon, well, that was his unstable name. Peter, Cephas, that was his stone man kind of name. And the Lord Jesus appeared to Cephas. You may remember that when the Lord met with the women after his resurrection. He said, go and tell my disciples and Peter. So he was seen by Cephas or Peter. What happened during that time? <laughs> I would love to know, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm remembering that Simon Peter denied even knowing the Lord three times. And sometimes we might think, well, the Lord had to straighten him out. When the Lord looked on Peter and Peter went out, wept bitterly, what kind of look do you think it was? You don't think it was an anger, do you? Maybe heartbreak. But just to make it right, he met with Cephas. And that's all we know about it. Would you like to know more? <laughs> Maybe he'll tell us when we get there. But that's just between Cephas and the Lord. Let me ask you, when you've made a terrible blunder, a mistake, and messed everything up. You're starting to look like that's never happened to you. It's happened to all of us. It's just that sometimes we're the only ones that know it. Aren't you glad that while the Lord writes an account, he doesn't give all the details of his working in our lives? He was seen by Cephas. And just between the Lord and Cephas, we have to just seal that testimony and say he was an eyewitness to the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5, he says, then by the 12. Now, if you're doing your arithmetic, you say, wait a minute, there weren't 12. There were only 11 because Judas went to his own place. And there weren't even 11 because Thomas wasn't there that first time. But they were still, even though 10, they were called the 12. We can accept that, can't we? That very first night of the resurrection, when the disciples were hiding in that room for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood right in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And he showed unto them his hands and his side. He was seen by the twelve. And then, 
I love this in verse 6. And that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. That's a lot of witnesses, isn't it? I mean, you might fool one or two, but you're going to fool 500? I mean, even secular history, Josephus records the matters of his resurrection and post-resurrection appearances right on the spot. And not only that, but when Paul says he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, don't miss the next part. The rest of verse 6 is thrilling. For he says, of whom the greater part remain to the present. In other words, Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. You've got hundreds still living at that particular time. If anyone would ever discredit or discount the matter of fact of the resurrection, that would have been the time. <laughs> no one could do it. Why? Because it's true. He's risen again. Do you folks ever say amen around here? <laughs> if I was going to say it, that would have been when I said it. I mean, really, think of it. Paul's not afraid to name it and to declare it. And he's saying, I've got plenty of backup here. Just go ask them. They're still alive. And he says, but some have fallen asleep. He's not talking about sleeping through meetings here. He's talking about asleep in the Lord Jesus. Some have already gone to be with him. But the greater part, <clears throat> what, 400 out of 500? At least. They're still there. And they remain to that present day. Verse 7, And that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, you know, the Lord's own family, his brethren, Judas and James, they didn't believe him until after his death, burial, and resurrection, and he appeared even to James. And then by all the apostles, <clears throat> and he gave them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Uh, what a commission. It's a great commission, and it's still enacted today. Now the Apostle Paul adds one more to this list of the demonstration in real life of the gospel message. Not only through Cephas and the twelve, over 500 brethren at once, and James and all the apostles, but look, if you will, in verse 8. I love the way the apostle Paul speaks of himself. You know, Saul means the great one. He changed his name to Paul when he was on the mission field. Paul means the little one. And so he says in verse 8, Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. He had an untimely spiritual birth. Not only that, but in verse 9, he says, For I am least of the apostles, and am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. 
Did Paul think too highly of himself? No, he thought very little of himself. And so we see him referring to his unworthy calling. We are unworthy. We're not worthless, we're unworthy. Sometimes we're worthless too, but he put a value on us, his own precious blood. But we were unworthy, just like Paul. And then the fact that he says, I'm least of the apostles. <laughs> I mean, that's saying something, isn't it? Paul, we think of him as the super apostle. But that's not the way he saw himself. Then in verse 10, we see his unwearying efforts to serve the God who is worthy. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's all by his grace. We have nothing we can boast of. The apostle Paul, he's the one that said this, and we agree with him. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I want to tell you, God is working in you and in me, though we may not understand why. But he will not give up until Christ is formed in us. And if it's not completed by the time the Lord comes back for us, he'll finish the work then. I had a nice letter from Brother J.W. Bramhall, John Bramhall. He was a, like a father in the faith to me. And he wrote a ministry letter, and he sent them out every month. One of his ministry letters developed this whole matter of God working in our lives to make us more like his son. And he said, little by little, he's changing us. So when he comes, he's going to finish the job, because when we see him, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And some of us, well, some of you won't have to change very much. You're very much like him already. But some of us will have a lot to change to be like him. As he developed that, at the end of the letter, he wrote me a personal note. Brother Rex, when he comes again, I hope I recognize you. I got his drift. He's going to finish the work, and he's going to change us to be like him. His grace will not be thwarted. It will not be disappointed. He is going to accomplish it even in our lives, and he won't give up till he's finished the work. And so no wonder Paul said, therefore I labored more abundantly than they all. Why? To show the greatness of God because of his grace, the grace of God which was with me. You know, serving the Lord, it's not a burden, is it? It's a pleasure, a joy. Take my yoke upon you. And you think, oh, how can we bear up under that yoke? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest unto your souls. My yoke is what? Pleasant. And my burden, tell me, light. People who say, oh, I'm just so tired in my service to the Lord. <laughs> Get a life, his life, and realize this is not a burden. This is a blessing. I don't want to be, I don't want to come across harsh in any way, shape, or form. There may be some of you who are just losing heart, weary, not of well-doing, but in well-doing. May I encourage you, take heart. 
the Savior, gave himself for us. We have it right there in the scriptures. But he also took his life back again, and now he is living for us, and he is going to continue working in us. Those sorrows he's going to mingle together with all of the successes or victories for his glory. And one day we're going to see the finished product. When Nance was going through some difficult times and we shared in it together, someone gave her a poem. She cross-stitched it so we would remember it. I remember how it goes. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper while I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly. Shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why? The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. When he finishes us, we're going to come forth how? As gold. He's going to see, as we come forth as gold, his reflection in us, and the job will be complete. And the Apostle Paul, he said, listen, there are some witnesses. I'm going to close with just the last few verses, starting in verse 11. I'll give you seven what-ifs. Seven what-ifs. Because they were those saying at that time, well, oh, there's no resurrection of bodily form. What if there's no resurrection? Does it matter? <laughs> it matters every bit. It's part of the gospel message. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures. So he says in verse 11, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has not been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Our very first of seven what ifs. If there's no resurrection for you and for me, then Christ was never raised again, but we know he was. Hang on to that thought. Verse 14 says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. That's the second what if. If there's no resurrection, then everything I've been saying since I stood up here tonight, is absolutely empty, in vain. And the rest of verse 14, and your faith is in vain. If there's no resurrection, the third what if, if he has no resurrection, then all who have believed have believed in vain for nothing. And verses 15 and 16, if there's no resurrection, I'll read verses 15 and 16. It says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the do dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. We are found to be false witnesses. And then... Fifthly, now it becomes desperate. In verse 17, if Christ is not risen, 
How important is the resurrection? Everything is riding on the fact that he rose again. And in verse 17, he says, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And catch this, you are still in your sins. And I don't know how much more desperate it could ever be than to say the one who came to bear away my sins has left them all here with me. The gravity of it all would take us right down. The sixth what if in verse 18, he says, then also those who have fallen asleep. Again, these are the ones who have gone before us. They've died in the Lord. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if there's no resurrection, this what if, number six, they've perished. We know better. I'm so glad we do. But lastly, the seventh. If in this life only, in other words, if this is all there is, if there's no resurrection after this life, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, the most miserable, because we followed a lie. And if there's no resurrection, those seven what-ifs, they're worth considering, aren't they? Before I close in prayer, I have to read the first two words of verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. You can't, I mean, you can't close the whole message without the good news, can you? But I'm going to draw the line right there, and we'll ask that the Lord will take these things we've looked at in his word, apply them to our lives, that it would yield fruit, those who need to be saved unto salvation, those who are saved unto our spiritual growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, once again, we bow our hearts before your presence and we thank and praise you for our wonderful Savior. There's none like him. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would save souls nearest hell who hear this message, that they would know for sure that they've not believed in vain, but have put their trust, their dependence, their reliance, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And having believed and received him as their personal Savior, they're ready to stand and to grow and to go on for you and to serve you with all of our strength. Lord, we pray that you would bless these things to our hearts in the name of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.